0: Let's open our Bibles to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 7, and the way it works here at Clifton Park Community Church, we don't just pick out a verse that we like and talk about it. We work our way through the Bible. We're committed to an expositional ministry. Not that we camp on every verse, but we take God's Word seriously, literature-wise, as well as inspired and work through the message of its paragraphs and chapters in order. So we've come to Luke chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verse 18 and following. We'll see that it's about John the Baptist. This is the last interaction Jesus will have with John the Baptist, one of his friends, a cousin. As you're opening to Luke 7, let me welcome those who might be watching online. We encourage you to visit with us and be present in person. Uh, for God's word to be preached. Verse 18 to 23. The disciples of John, that is, John the Baptist, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go, go. And tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it to all who hear, believe. And obey it. Amen. You might think that if Luke is writing a gospel account trying to present an orderly account about Jesus and explain how Jesus is the Messiah. That he might not include somebody from the inner circle of characters like John the Baptist who has questions like this. You ever think about that? I know in the political world you often hear we have administrations in Washington, DC come and go and and usually one administration blames the previous one for all their problems. But when someone from the previous administration says something critical, it's like that's an insider. That's almost more troubly than, than the back and forth in the back and forth. Here we have John the Baptist, who was present when Jesus began his public ministry, baptized him in the Jordan, and all of that, who pointed and even gave up some of his disciples to Jesus. He now has this really big question. Why is Luke putting this in? Isn't this kind of embarrassing? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But if you read the Bible long enough, you know that the Bible is never embarrassed by truth. The Bible doesn't worry about having uh, limited access to history because something might refute it. The Bible, the word of God, can face all challenges and answer all questions. That's just the way it is. And maybe we need to say that more and more. Luke is not embarrassed by this account. He says... Bring it on. I will write about that when I get to chapter 7. It's going in the book. As plain and as challenging as it might be, it's going in because it is actually vital to answer that question. And if Luke can't record the answer of Jesus to that question and the resolution of that very question, why write a gospel at all? Or maybe I can put it this way. If the Bible can't help you with your questions, and if Jesus can't stand up to some scrutiny by modern-day skeptics, why preach? Why pass out Bibles? Why read them? The Bible can handle all these things. And we do well to pay attention to the answers of Jesus here because he not only answers the needs of John the Baptist and his disciples but he can answer your needs and your questions today it's it's a model and it's included with intentionality not with embarrassment Let's look at it under three different headings here. First, we'll see John the Baptist reconsidering what he has heard. We'll enter into that questioning of John the Baptist. Then we'll look at the reply of Jesus. And then we'll spend a couple minutes on verse 23, that strong concluding statement. Because as you go through the chapter, you'll find that each little vignette, each section ends with a very powerful statement. We'll see that next week and the week after, Lord willing. So let's uh, begin here at the beginning uh, and see the situation of John the Baptist, who's reconsidering, if we can put it that way, what he has heard. Verse 18, it's John the Baptist's own disciples. There were a few that stayed with him. Not everyone had followed Jesus. They reported all these things to him. What things? Well, they had reported uh, the news that Jesus had, you can see right here just in chapter 7, Jesus had gone uh, and and, and initiated some healing with a centurion's servant and said he saw such great faith. And Jesus had encountered uh, a, a widow in Nain whose son had died and raises this dead man to life in a very public miracle. Things were happening And these disciples of John were reporting. Why didn't John see these things for himself? Well, John was in prison. But let's back up even before this day. What do we know about John the Baptist? We know that John the Baptist saw Jesus as the Messiah. When you look at the Gospel of John written by a different John... You know that it was John the Baptist who, in chapter 1, verse 29, pointed at Jesus and said prophetically, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So what did John the Baptist think of Jesus? (laughs) Jesus is the Messiah, and not just, you know, King David with the sword Messiah, but the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. The fulfillment, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist knew his Bible, and with the Holy Spirit's work, he, his eyes were open and he saw Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, the day that Jesus came to be baptized in the Jordan, you can read about this. John says, Hey, you don't need to be baptized as though you're repenting or you need this picture of cleansing. You don't need that, Jesus. Jesus says, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was entering into identification for the people of God. He he talks to John the Baptist and says, let's do this anyways." John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the divine son of God. And after Jesus was baptized, John perceived with everyone present, some manifestation of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. And John the Baptist, along with others present, heard a voice from heaven, rather rare event in the Bible, but he heard God say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I don't know about your experiences as a believer, But those are pretty big events in the life of John the Baptist. So now he hears this news, but he's pondering and has this question. What has changed that brings him to question or to, to rethink, to reconsider? Well, a couple of things have changed. His new circumstances. As he ponders the news, he sits in prison. Herod had imprisoned John the Baptist for preaching the truth. John the Baptist hadn't really done anything wrong. He was serving God, pleasing God, preaching the truth, and they still put him in jail. That may happen to preachers in our day sometimes. But he's in jail, and Jesus didn't get him out. Maybe he had heard that Peter and John had been arrested. No, that's getting ahead in the timeline. But he, he's wondering, why am I languishing here when Jesus has come to set the prisoners free? So he's incarcerated, and, and regardless of how bad a situation is, we can certainly say that being imprisoned does not make one an optimist, typically. So John the Baptist is in prison, and I think he had an awareness that his end was in sight. So, what's changed? Knowing the ends is in sight, he wants to be faithful with his pointing to Jesus. I think that's part of it. I I just need to confirm this. Godly men of old have often asked God for confirmations. But there's another dynamic at work here, and perhaps you've never thought of this, and not many Bible commentators talk about this. Why is John pondering the news? A lot of commentaries just throw John the Baptist under the bus. Well, he's given up, he's having doubts, he's paralyzed. I think some of that language is too strong. I think part of John's concern, knowing that he would soon be departing this world, was not just for getting his ministry correct, but for his disciples. There are some excellent commentators who see this thread and this concern. John the Baptist is taking measure to bless his disciples when he's gone? Would they transition to Jesus? They'd been with him. They hadn't left for Jesus yet. Maybe they were on the fence. And he's thinking of them, and he wants them to see the Lamb of God close up and to be transitioned. But John did have questions. You know, John had been the one who had preached that... uh, Well, here's a passage of his preaching. You can see it in Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 and following. Just a sample of the preaching of John the Baptist. And he's wondering, if that stuff I was preaching from the Old Testament is true, why aren't we all seeing it? So Matthew 3, verse 10, John said, "...even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees." Doesn't surprise you. John the Baptist was a pretty fiery preacher. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think you have a clue of John the Baptist, his Christology there. The one who comes, comes not only to save, but to judge. So part of the question I think John wants to answer for himself if not for his disciples, what about the judgment part of your mission? What about the judgment part of your mission? Like many Jews of the day, they expected the Messiah to be a deliverer from oppressive Roman occupation and to restore the physical glories of a physical Jewish kingdom. But when Jesus answers, he'll correct that or at least clarify that. So John the Baptist is pondering, and I don't think it's so much as doubting who Jesus is, but maybe questioning the timeline. Did I get the mission right when I preached that way? He wants some clarification, and he wants to take care of his disciples. And as we said at the beginning... According to Luke, this is a very important question. Luke has put this in his orderly presentation for Theophilus so that it would get answered. And those who have questions, those who have doubts, would bring them to Jesus. As commentator David Jeffrey said, Luke's narrative will not exclude challenges to the truth he is proclaiming. Luke's readers should grasp in this narrative an important distinction, and here it is. A pursuit of righteousness is good, but superior to it is a recognition that Jesus is the singular standard for righteousness, and Jesus is the only focus of saving faith. This passage is here, to call us to more careful focus on the person of Jesus Christ. So let's look at his reply, the reply of Jesus to those who ask. And let's start, as it's always good to do, by just pausing and seeing what he doesn't do. Okay, I'll I'll go back and read and you tell me what he doesn't do. Or I'll tell you. The disciples Verse 20, And when these men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of the diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Do you notice what Jesus didn't do? He doesn't rebuke John. Come on, John. You had it right. Why are you pausing now? Get with the team. He doesn't rebuke John. In fact, many see verse 23 As a blessing, as an incentive to hang on. So Jesus doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't rebuke those disciples for bringing the message. Jesus doesn't seem to take offense at the question, does he? He doesn't, there's no, he doesn't go off and pray, or or, or, he's, he's not troubled by the question. And further, notice that Jesus does not change his ministry to fit someone's expectations. Oh, we see plenty of that in the modern world. You know how leaders lead. They take a poll. What would it look like if I went here or talked to that group? Your ratings would go up. Okay, book it. Jesus doesn't change his ministry. He's still doing what the reports of him had said he was doing. And back all the way to Luke 4, when he started his public ministry, he talked about what he would do. He's still doing those very things. So he doesn't change his ministry to fit one person's expectations. And notice further, careful students of God's word should see this. He doesn't just give a verbal answer. The answers that the Bible give aren't just talk. You know, if you've talked with a Christian, uh, especially a zealous young Christian, and they're trying to convert you, I remember those days, and then I remember being that Christian. (laughs) It's not just talk. We can point to historical events and physical historical realities, uh, like the empty tomb, a few other things. Jesus doesn't just talk. He doesn't change his ministry. He doesn't rebuke. You might wonder, Jesus does give a verbal reply, but he doesn't only give a verbal reply. Just so you're aware, do you remember what John 5 records Jesus as saying? Well, here it is. John 5.30 and following, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own, As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, verse 31, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the Bible. That talks about having more than one witness, two witnesses to something, to to establish it. Jesus knows that his words alone would fall short of that standard. So he does works as well as give words to John the Baptist. He gives evidence of who he is by his miracles, and he gives evidence of who he is by his message. So it's a two-pronged answer for John the Baptist and for his disciples. Let's take a look at those two angles of John, excuse me, of Jesus in his response to John. Verse 21. They asked his question, and the very first thing, according to Luke in verse 21, Jesus kept healing in that hour. These guys show up. They have a question. Jesus listened to the question, but he stayed with his ministry for that moment. And it doesn't mean literally 60 minutes. Just in that hour, he he completed what he was doing. Perhaps there was a line of people to be healed or some follow-up work. He finished that up before he spoke. And it says, in that hour, he healed many people. Of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Diseases, plagues, evil spirits, blindness? He had at least four people come to him, and and the Bible says even many, so a few of each kind. And we're given that sampling summary in that list that's consistent with what Jesus has been doing, raising up the dead. That's a great climax, is it not? And here, the emphasis seems to be on blindness. That shows up a couple of times, both in the actions and in the words of Jesus. On many who were blind, he bestowed sight. There's evidence from these miracles who Jesus is, and it goes all the way back to his very first message. Do you remember back in is it Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was in the synagogue and beginning his public ministry? Um, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, so it's Luke 4, beginning in verse 17. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's the Jesus day. It was his mission to do those things. Both spiritual and physical things. And on that list many of the eyes of the blind were opened. So Jesus lets his actions. The fruit of his ministry speak first. Those disciples had passed along reports. Perhaps they had not been eyewitnesses yet. Makes a difference. I suppose if you're passing on the report, you might use language like, it's reported that Jesus did this. Some are saying Jesus did that. We don't know. But these disciples are there. And it says, they have seen it. Because Jesus instructs them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So the first evidence, the first presentation is look what Jesus has done. Look what Jesus can do. So if your question is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the son of God? And you live in the year 2023. What do you do? Can you look around the room and see what Jesus has done? I won't ask people to raise their hand or stand at their feet, but I bet this room would erupt in testimony. If I asked, has Jesus saved anyone in this room? Has Jesus set anyone in this room free from their sin and guilt? Has He given you a future and a hope when you were lost and wandering? Look around. If you're a seeker and you have a friend or an acquaintance or a family member who's come to faith in Christ, if they say they've been born again, aren't they different? Don't you see the power of Jesus at work in them? They they may still have their illness. They may, may still have their infirmities. Their physical situation may not yet be touched, but you can see the power of God at work within things that doctors and operations can't do. Jesus works first and foremost on the heart, as we'll see in a moment. But is there evidence that God is at work in this world? Yes, there is. And it's not just here among people you know, but you can read church history. What took those apostles who had followed Jesus and were scattered in Gethsemane, what took them and changed them the 11 that were faithful to go out and die a martyr's death, except for the Apostle John. What changed those fishermen turned disciples? They encountered the risen Christ, the realities of who Jesus is and what he can do. He can conquer death. And emboldened by the evidence of his power, lives were changed. And you can see it all throughout history. As the gospel was recovered in the Protestant Reformation, men would die at the stake for the truth that they've learned because they know the reality of it. The power of God had changed their heart and mind. There's evidence to be seen even today. But Jesus doesn't simply point to the miracles he could perform. He goes on with the message And in verse 22, his instructions to these disciples, he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And he tells them. Jesus puts the caption on what they have seen and heard in verse 22. The blind receive their sight. He puts that first. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the climax, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus does several things in that verbal part of his response. He says these miracles aren't just shows of power. They are fulfilled scripture. Luke chapter 4, that prophecy Jesus has read, those very things were happening. So Jesus is saying, connect the dots. I, don't, I not only have power, I am fulfilling Prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61. And of course, Isaiah is filled with verses. For instance, Isaiah 35, verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus puts a caption to his ministry that John the Baptist would recognize. You know the scriptures, John. You're an Old Testament prophet. You're that transition to who I am now. I am fulfilling the very things that you saw in me. I'm not only the Lamb of God fulfilling the sacrificial system, I am the promised Messiah fulfilling all those prophecies, and you can check them off. Miracles and the message of fulfilled prophecy over the course of centuries, he says, tell John it is happening according to script. But he not only emphasizes what these men have seen and heard, but that last phrase of Jesus. The poor have good news preached to them. I think that's the climax of the specific answer for a reason. Because he's telling John, I'm not simply here to heal everyone and to push out the bad guys. I'm here with an answer to our greatest problem, a guilty heart. That we have offended our God, what shall we do to atone? Jesus came to preach good news. Jesus came to preach and point to himself. Jesus is reminding John the Baptist of the spiritual heart of his ministry. You see, the first advent of the Messiah is all about salvation. We know from the fullness of what Jesus would teach and his apostles would teach that there was more to come. That there would be a second coming and that coming would be in judgment. And when Jesus shows up a second time, it's not to go to the cross, but he will come with armies of angels and he will gather the world around and he will separate the sheep and the goats. He'll bring his winnowing fork then. But first things first, he came to shed his blood and die for fallen men and women. Jesus came as the Lamb of God. You got it right, John. And I'm preaching good news and pointing to the primary part of my mission is to show men how to be right with God, how to be free of their sin and guilt, how to be changed by this good news. It's the evidence of that message that confirms who Jesus is. The spiritual message of the gospel. I hope you know what the gospel is. It's a message rooted in historical facts. The gospel is not simply be like Jesus. No. That's a good thing to be like Jesus. But that's a hard thing. And what do you do when you fail? What do you do about the sins there? No, the good news is Jesus came and has full righteousness he never sinned he fully obeyed the law of God and then he laid down his life as a substitute for sinners the sinless one died and his divine blood shed for sinners cleanses us from all unrighteousness And his righteousness is imputed to us in the gospel. That means when you put your faith in Christ, he takes your sins and he gives you his righteousness. God sees you differently. You're born again into his kingdom. That's good news. That's why Jesus came, died, and rose again. Jesus ends this passage in verse 23 with this statement. And some call it a blessing and some call it a warning. Let's take a look. Verse 23, the last thing he passes along for John the Baptist and for these disciples, he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Pretty general. It's kind of like you can put your name in the blank. Blessed is the one. So that's good for anyone. John, his disciples, us, I think it's a little bit both blessing and warning. What's the blessing? What's the blessing? It's the one who is not offended is blessed. John had come to a crossroads of some sort as he pondered all that Jesus was doing and all that he expected Jesus to do and, and whether he's just checking his timeline or wanting to confirm his thinking He's at this crossroads, and Jesus says, don't linger at the crossroads. Jesus says, don't come to a halt. Don't be blocked by me. Don't be offended by me, but press on. He's saying, keep faith in me. We need to know what this offended term means. It's an interesting, a very picturesque word in Greek, and... um, if I knew ancient Greek better, I could probably give you other examples from other literature. All I know is, is the, the roots of this phrase, forgiving offense, had something to do with the trapping of birds. Hear me out. You know, if you're going to catch a bird, and, and you, know, you have to have something that triggers the trap. So this verb was used for the trigger, the action that triggers the trap. It has to be sensitive to catch a bird and it has to be decisive to spring the trap. And Jesus says, don't do what will trap you. Blessed is the one who doesn't get trapped or stopped or hindered or offended by me. We all have our ideas about what God's like. We all have our ideas of what Jesus is like. Jesus is just saying, don't let your expectations or your suppositions trap you. Don't let the way you regard me trap you. I am the Son of God. I am the Savior. Press on and believe and be saved. Hold fast. He who believes to the end. Whom Jesus says will be blessed. So don't fall for that offendedness. And notice that Jesus is speaking that way. Well, I could say he's preaching to the choir. These were believers, these were servants of God, John the Baptist and his disciples. He's not saying this to those Pharisees. The warning implied here, as well as the blessing, is for believers. I think it's captured in, in Old Testament passage as well. Because this language of taking offense reminds us of one who stumbles at Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 8, there's this. As, as Isaiah explains, For the Lord thus spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy what the people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, says Isaiah. Let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, says Isaiah 8. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That's just one of the many Old Testament passages that talk about a stumbling block. And God allowed it in the life of his ancient people to separate. There's some warning implied as Jesus speaks to followers and potential followers be careful not to go the way of your own choosing but to go by way of me and don't trip over me don't be offended by me in fact in John chapter 6 Jesus had to bring this exact question to his disciples to those who were following him John 6 at the very end verse 60 when many of his disciples heard it they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, Do you take offense at this? If you know anything about John 6, you know Jesus presents some pretty exclusive claims. No one comes to the Father but by me. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part for me. Jesus is pretty clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 6 is a big chapter in that throwdown. And his disciples say, this is kind of hard. And Jesus says, that's the way it is. Do you take offense at that? Do you stumble at that? Do you want to redefine me? Do you want me to fit your expectations and start doing what you want? Or what my Father wants and what you need? We need the Son of God, the Savior who dies for sinners. We need The Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our imagination. So Jesus said to them in John 6, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And he goes on. He acknowledged that some would not believe. So this verse is a blessing and encouragement, but it is also a warning. Don't be offended. Because the key for John the Baptist is the key for anyone who picks up a Bible, for anyone who's wondering who Jesus is. Will you accept him as he presents himself, as he is in history and time and in the recorded word? Or are you going to prefer your understanding and your expectations and try to redefine Jesus? The key is your faith needs to be in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't let him be a stumbling stone because you prefer your thinking. Instead, take the Lord Jesus Christ and make him the cornerstone. The stone that others have rejected, God has made the cornerstone of his work in the world. The cornerstone upon which God is building his church is Jesus Christ. Come to him. Hold that cornerstone as precious and build your life around him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can bring our heart and our mind to Jesus for answers. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken blessings and warnings for us to heed. And Father, we thank you too for the example of John the Baptist as he cared for his disciples to see Jesus as he is. Father, may we care first for our own soul's well-being. May we bow before Christ and own him as our Lord. And may we tell others what we have found in Jesus. May we leave a clear witness and testimony to those who would follow us that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. May others know our testimony, that others may know our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.